Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman Program, broadcasting on commercial radio stations from coast to coast on Sirius XM all across the North American continent, on Pacifica stations across America, Europe, and Africa, on American Forces Radio, and every U.S. military base in the world, and your electronic device via TuneIn, Progressive Voices, Tom Hartman app, and simulcast as television via Free Speech TV network on Dish Network, DirecTV, and cable systems all over the country. There's a couple of stories here that I think are just absolutely fascinating the National Defense Authorization Act. There's a history to that that most people don't know. And I just wanted to share it very quickly with you and then talk about why I think that this is a big deal and a reflection of our national priorities in the fact that most of the progressive changes that were put into the bill in the House of Representatives, including cutting off money to Saudi Arabia for their genocidal war in Yemen and things like that, had been taken out by Republicans in the Senate. The background of this goes back to the founding of our republic. There was a big debate in the Constitutional Convention about whether Congress should authorize or whether the Constitution should authorize the nation to have a single military, an army, basically, a national army. There was a consensus that we needed a navy, we needed to protect our shores, we needed to protect shipping, commerce, things like that. But what about an army? And the problem was, the concern was, that armies during times of peace very often turn their attention to taking over governments to corrupting governments or even overthrowing governments. You know, the military coups, the corruption of governments by the military were, even in 1787, legendary and just built into the woof and warp of, or warp and weave, I guess is the, whatever the phrase is, of European history. And you had a few people who were saying, yeah, no problem, let's have a military or let's have an army, a standing army throughout time. And then you had the majority of the people who were writing the Constitution and some people on the outside. Jefferson was in Paris at the time, and he was writing nasty grams, you know, letters to the guys writing the Constitution saying, no, you want to ban the army during time of peace. And instead, have each state have a militia, what we call the National Guard today, have each state have a militia and have the federal government have the power to call up that militia. And in fact, that's, you know, one of the powers that is actually, you know, put into 
the Constitution is that, you know, Congress has the power to call up the militia. But it goes beyond that. In fact, this is in Article 1, Section 8, Part 16, he has uh, the Congress shall have the power to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia and for governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States. But what precedes that is Section 12. This is Section 8, Paragraph 12, or Sentence 12, whatever. That Congress shall have the right for taxation and things like that, quote, to raise and support armies, but no appropriation of money to that use shall be for a longer term than two years. Now, this is the only place in the entire Constitution where Congress's ability to appropriate money through taxation and spend that money is limited in time. Congress can appropriate and spend money in perpetuity on maintaining national parks or on maintaining the Navy or on maintaining, I mean, you fill in the blanks, right? Pretty much anything that they want to do. Congress can do that forever, but literally the only place in the Constitution where it says Congress can only spend money for a two-year period is in Article 1, Section 8 with regard to the Army. And the reason why is because they wanted Congress every two years to be forced to have a debate about whether the military had gotten too strong, too big, too powerful, had too much influence on our political systems, it represented a threat to our republic. And that debate is not happening anymore. Dwight Eisenhower, when he left office, said we need to be concerned about the influence of the military-industrial complex. And he was very specific about it. In fact, he said this not only threatened our nation, it threatened the spiritual basis of our nation as well as everything else. He was very outspoken about it. So now what we are seeing right now is that the Department of Defense's budget for the year 2000, the last year of the Clinton administration, the year of the election that when uh, George Bush stole the election in Florida, the military defense budget for that year was $384 billion. So just hold on to that number in your mind, less than $400 billion. And it was a pretty high amount. It was substantial. And then came George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, who lied us into two wars. They told us that we had to invade Afghanistan when, in fact, Mullah Omar, the head of the Taliban, the leader of Afghanistan, had said, you know, if Osama bin Laden is responsible for 9-11, if you can provide any evidence to the world to that effect, we will arrest him and turn him over to a third country for prosecution. Afghanistan was the second poorest country in the world. Burkina Faso was the, was the poorest. Number two was Afghanistan. Their annual GDP was only $2 billion. But George W. Bush wanted a war. He had made that very clear back in 1998 when he was being interviewed by Mickey Herskowitz, who was the biographer, the writer that his, his father and mother hired to ghostwrite his autobiography, A Charge to Keep. And ultimately, another writer finished the job because Bush wasn't happy with Herskowitz, but Herskowitz had over 100 hours of recorded conversations with George W. Bush. 
and Cindy Sheehan laid this right out. This is Cindy Sheehan testifying before Congress, before John Connors' commission. Here's what she had to say. As a matter of fact, in interviews in 1999 with respected journalists and longtime Bush family friend Mickey Herskowitz, then-Governor George Bush stated, One of the keys to being seen as a great leader is to be seen as commander-in-chief. My father had all this political capital built up when he drove the Iraqis out of Kuwait, and he wasted it. If I have a chance to invade, if I had that much capital, I'm not going to waste it. I'm going to get everything passed that I want to get passed, and I'm going to have a successful presidency, end quote. And there you go. It doesn't get clearer than that. And as I said, you know, Dwight Eisenhower warned us about this. He was quite explicit about it. I think this is the point where he says it. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without risking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. So we're spending $700 billion for defense, and we can't fund food stamps. Eisenhower continues. During the long lane in the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. Now, I would say that we are, right now, at that point that Dwight Eisenhower was talking about. And frankly, I think we've been there for several decades. And whenever you come forward and say, hey, let's, let's wipe out student debt, and the Republicans go, how are you gonna pay for it? Let's give everybody health care. How are you gonna pay for it? Uh, let's, let's wipe out, you know, I mean, Betsy DeVos won't even wipe out student debt for kids who got ripped off by for-profit colleges that were clearly fraudulent. And this is crazy. Well, we can't afford to pay for it. Donald Trump just cut, just threw 750, just, just in time for Christmas, just threw 750,000 people off food stamps. That was less than a billion dollars. Why? Well, we can't afford to pay for it. And now the military is coming and saying, we want $738 billion. And Trump is planning on giving them actually more than they're asking for. The concerns of our founders were justified. Dwight Eisenhower, the, the last honestly elected Republican president, the last Republican to be elected without fraud or treason, Dwight Eisenhower laid out why we should be concerned about it. And I'm telling you, you know, the, this NDAA is going to be coming up here in the next week or so. And as I said, it originally had a bunch of progressive stuff in it, and that's all been stripped out by the Senate. And it might be worth a phone call to your members of Congress if you share my concerns that we are just wasting our money with the military, or at least some of our money with the military. I'm not saying we don't need a military. And in the process, ignoring our people. 
Dr. Richard Wolf is back with us, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, the author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, his latest, Understanding Socialism, the one just before that was Understanding Marxism. Democracyatwork.info is his website, as well as rdwolf with two Fs, dot com. You can tweet him at profwolf with two Fs. Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. So last week we were talking about Marxism and versus capitalism. I'd like to dig into this a little bit more along with your new book, Understanding Socialism. A lot of young people, particularly since the crash of 2008, are realizing that capitalism isn't the end all and be all. And, and, and also, particularly since we, we're now 40, almost 40 years into the, the Reaganomics experience, uh, experiment of extreme capitalism, of you know, largely unregulated capitalism. And uh, you know, it's just devastating the workforce. Some new statistics in Brookings that 44% of all people in the workforce are earning full-time people in the workforce are earning a median salary of $18,000 a year, which is just shocking. So a lot of people are looking towards something else, and the word socialism gets kicked around a lot. And of course, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics used the word socialism. So my question to you, I guess, is explain to us what actually has worked historically. I mean, we look at the, quote, socialist experiment of, of the Soviet Union, and it seemed to have failed. We look at the, quote, socialist experiment of China, and they're on a path to surpass the United States, although, you know, I'm not sure that most of us would want to live under a regime that has over a million people in prison camps. And then we look at the countries of Northern Europe, particularly the Scandinavian countries, that call themselves socialist. And they have a higher quality of life, longer lifespan, better educational outcomes, better everything than we do here. But they have higher taxes, oh my God. And so what's what here? Well, you know, the question is great. There's no question that people are in America kind of coming out, I like to say, of a kind of hibernation like bears have. Ever since the Second World War and the great turning against socialism and communism and all on all of that the red scare the mccarthy period and all of that we've had a society that has kind of swept all of that away as if it were either old-fashioned or evil or disloyal and it's even gone to the point that we don't have a socialist party of any size or influence the way every other industrial country in the world does, not even to mention those where the Socialist Party are part of the government, like is the case today in Portugal or Germany, and so on. Americans are finally coming out of hibernation and recognizing that, as you put it, capitalism isn't the be-all and end-all, and a healthy society ought to be able to criticize what it has in the hopes of doing something better. The one thing that I think unites all socialists is the notion simply that we can do better than capitalism, and the effort to think that through and to figure out where it to go is worthwhile and part of what any healthy society these days ought to have. Having said that, Socialism has meant different things to different people. If I wanted to judge capitalism, for example, would I pick as my example Saudi Arabia, which, by the way, boasts of its capitalist economy? Should I pick some other dictatorship in Latin America? For example, Bolsonaro, now in Brazil. What kind of society is that? He calls it a capitalist society and so forth and so on. And the answer is no, that capitalism has different forms and the 
same is true of socialism. Yes, there are things that socialism has that I don't want, that other socialists don't agree with. Uh, you find that in the Soviet Union, that there were things there that we can learn to do and things there that we can learn not to do. A balanced assessment of socialist experiments, Russia, China, Cuba, Denmark, Sweden, all of these give you things to follow, things to build on, and things to avoid like the plague. And a rational conversation, which is what we haven't had for the period of hibernation since the late 40s, a rational conversation would reopen that question, which is what the new and young generation of Americans is demanding. Take a look at socialism. It's the most developed alternative that capitalism has. It's the product of what people did who thought they could do better than capitalism. And it is simple human decency to take a look at what they've achieved in Denmark, in Scandinavia, also in Russia and China, to come up with whatever lessons there are for how we can move forward in the United States without imagining that we've come to the end of history, that capitalism is the only and best thing, and that anybody who thinks otherwise is somehow being disloyal. Wouldn't it be useful to imagine, to visualize a spectrum, and at one end of the spectrum is the government basically does nothing except run the army, that would be pure libertarianism. And at the other end of the spectrum is the government owns everything. It owns every business. It does all the manufacturing. It does all the, the service industries, absolutely everything. In fact, even all private property, all housing. And on that end of the spectrum, you have the old Soviet Union. And on the, the government only has an army end of the spectrum. Well, that's never been successfully tried anywhere in the world. But you would have what the libertarians in the United States say, you know, all capitalist countries should become. And then in the middle, what you have as you slide through the spectrum is a change in the definition of what is the appropriate role of government and arguably what that means is what is the commons the government should administer. So, you know, it could be that the commons should include jobs and housing and health care and education like happens in Denmark, but doesn't happen here with any of those things, although we've agreed that the commons for health care should extend to people who are over 65, but, you know, and, and in some states it extends to everyone. And as we move that line across that spectrum from government doing nothing to government doing everything, we start hitting these different points that we call unregulated capitalism, heavily regulated capitalism, capitalism with socialism, socialism without capitalism, you know, all that kind of... Is, is that a reasonable way to think of it? Absolutely. I would have two comments on that. One, that's what I mean by opening up a rational conversation. Let us ask, for example, if we have a, a here in New York City where I live, we have a beautiful park in the middle of our city. It's called Central Park. It's really spectacular. It, throughout its history, it's been a place where no fee is charged to enter. If you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter. If you want to share the beautiful space on a lovely afternoon with your family on a blanket and have a picnic, you do it. And you do it freely, and it's a way for the whole city to overcome many other kinds of divisions, to do something pleasurable together. And we think it's valuable, and nobody in 
in their right mind, excepting a few libertarians perhaps, would suggest that we ought to make it a fee for service. We don't want that. We want it to be shared, like we do our public schools, like we do a whole lot of other things. And that would be a rational conversation. Should we have health care handled one way or the other? Public schools, transport. Kansas City just canceled all fees for public transport. This is a very interesting idea. Nobody says that's an evil thing to do. It's a reasonable conversation, pros and cons. So, yes, I think there's a continuum, and a society that isn't too frightened to ask these questions would pursue the answers and, I think, make a better society than we have. But there's a second point. Not all socialists think, I'm one of them, that the government is the necessary and appropriate thing that ought to happen. We think that that the whole debate between capitalism and socialism really hinges on a different issue. Not so much whether the government or the private sector does it. That should be decided, as I just said, in terms of what people want and how they want to enjoy life. For us, the question is, how do you organize the workplace, the factory, the office, the store? Do you have a small number of people at the top, the owner, the board of directors, making all the decisions, what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the profits that, after all, everybody helped to produce? Do you have a few people doing that who are unaccountable to the vast majority of employees? Or do you make it a democratic institution where all the people have a say, all the stakeholders have a role to play? Socialism, for me, is bringing democracy to the workplace, to the economy, where it should have been all along, from which it has been excluded. And for me, that's the big change coming, not so much the debate over government versus private. And also you could apply that spectrum there, because, for example, uh, you could argue that a union is democracy in the workplace or or a co-op. I mean, you know, the co-op is one end of the spectrum, the union's at the other. That's right. And I think, look, I think in a rational society, we would have a public debate and maybe even a public decision. What portion of the economy do we want to work as a co-op? How many of us want to work in a workplace which is democratic versus hierarchical? In order for us to have that debate and to make that decision, we have to have a worker co-op sector alongside our capitalist sector and let people see it and feel it and work in it and buy from it. And then let's make a decision rather than assuming that all of that has been historically settled and is nothing we ought to think about. That's self-repression of a fundamental issue, which is how we want the economy to serve us rather than us always adjusting to the economic system we have. Brilliant. Professor Richard Wolff, economist and co-founder of Democracy at Work, democracyatwork.info, and rdwolf with two fs.com, his newest book, Understanding Socialism. Dr. Wolff, thank you so much for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom, and thanks for the opportunity to discuss this. My pleasure. Look forward to our next conversation. Hiring is challenging, and it used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. 
ZipRecruiter. In fact, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, and they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you cannot miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Right now, listeners here can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-G-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Our book today is uh, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence by Kristen Godsey. And this is from the introduction titled, You Might Be Suffering from Capitalism. The argument of this book can be summed up succinctly. Unregulated capitalism is bad for women. And if we adopt some ideas from socialism, women will have better lives. If done properly, socialism leads to economic independence, better labor conditions, better work family balance, and yes, even better sex. Finding a way into a better future requires learning from the mistakes of the past, including a thoughtful assessment of the history of 20th century state socialism in Eastern Europe. That's it. If you like the idea of such outcomes, then come along for an exploration of how we might change things. If you're dubious because you don't understand why capitalism as an economic system is uniquely bad for women, and if you doubt that there could ever be anything good about socialism, this short treatise will provide some illumination. If you don't give a wit about women's lives because you're a gynophobic right-wing internet troll, save your money and go back to your parents' basement right now. This isn't the book for you. Of course, some might argue that unregulated capitalism sucks for almost everyone, but I want to focus on how capitalism disproportionately harms women. Competitive labor markets discriminate against those whose reproductive biology makes them primarily responsible for childbearing. Today, this means humans who get pink hats in the hospital and the letter F next to the name on the birth certificate as if we've already failed by not coming into the world as a boy. Competitive labor markets also devalue those expected to be the primary caregivers of children. Although societal attitudes have evolved in this regard, our idealization of motherhood means that most of us still believe that baby needs mama a whole lot more than papa, at least until the child is old enough to play sports. Others will argue that unregulated capitalism is not bad for all women. Yes, for those women lucky enough to sit at the top of the income distribution, the system works pretty well although women at the executive level still face gender pay gaps and remain underrepresented in leadership positions, on the whole, things aren't too shabby for the Sheryl Sandbergs of the world. Of course, sexual harassment still hinders progress, even for those at the top, and too many women believe that if you want to run with the big dogs, you may have to suck it up and ignore the groping and unwanted advances. And race plays an important role as well. White women do a lot better in aggregate than do women of color. But when we look at society as a whole, on average, women are comparatively worse off in countries where markets are less encumbered by regulation, taxation, and public enterprises than they are in nations where state revenues support greater levels of redistribution and larger social safety nets. Choose your data source, and you find the same story. Unemployment and poverty plague women with children. Employers discriminate against women without children because they might have them in the future. In the United States in 2013, women over the age of 65 suffered from poverty at much greater rates than men and dominated those in the category of extreme poverty. Globally, women face higher rates of economic deprivation. 
Women are often the last to be hired and the first to be fired in cyclical downturns. And when they do find employment, bosses pay them less than men. When states need to slash government spending on education, health care, or old age pensions, mothers, daughters, sisters, and wives must pick up the slack, diverting their energy to care for the young, the sick, and the elderly. Capitalism thrives on women's unpaid labor in the home because women's care work supports lower taxes. Lower taxes mean higher profits for those already at the top of the income ladder, mostly men. But capitalism was not always so savage. Throughout much of the 20th century, state socialism presented an existential challenge to the worst excesses of the free market. The threat posed by Marxist ideologies forced Western governments to expand social safety nets to protect workers from the unpredictable but inevitable booms and busts of the capitalist economy. After the Berlin Wall fell, many celebrated the triumph of the West, consigning socialist ideas to the dustbin of history. But for all its faults, state socialism provided an important foil for capitalism. It was in response to a global discourse of social and economic rights, a discourse that appealed not only to the progressive populations of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, but also to many men and women in Western Europe and North America, that politicians agreed to improve working conditions for wage laborers, as well as to create social programs for children, the poor, the elderly, the sick, and the disabled, mitigating exploitation and the growth of income inequality. Although there are, were important antecedents in the 1980s, once state socialism collapsed, capitalism shook off the constraints of market regulation and income redistribution. Without the looming threat of a rival superpower, the last 30 years of global neoliberalism have witnessed a rapid shriveling of social programs that protect citizens from cyclical instability and financial crises and reduce the vast inequality of economic outcomes between those at the top and those at the bottom of the income distribution. For much of the 20th century, Western capitalist countries also endeavored to outdo the East European countries in terms of women's rights, fueling progressive social change. For example, the state socialists in the USSR and Eastern Europe were so successful at giving women economic opportunities outside the home that initially, for the two decades after the end of World War II, women's wage work was conflated with the evils of communism. The American way of life meant male breadwinners and female homemakers. But slowly, socialist championing of women's emancipation began to chip away at the Leave it to Beaver ideal. The Soviet launch of Sputnik in 1957 spurred American leaders to rethink the costs of maintaining traditional gender roles. They feared the state socialists enjoyed an advantage in technological development and why women have better sex under socialism. Okay, so I started out by talking about our priorities and then you know, went into how, you know, the military and, and, and the defense industry also. I mean, you know, the defense industry, most defense contractors, most of the very large defense contractors have literally built a, a factory or a plant or even in some cases a very small operation, but literally have one in every congressional district in America so that there is not a single member of Congress who can't be lobbied by their own citizens saying, please save my job at McDonnell Douglas or at Boeing or whatever it may be, right? And what we're, what we're you know, spending our money on. Well, back in 1944, 75 years ago, and a tip of the hat to Meteor Blades over at Daily Kos for reminding me of this, Franklin Roosevelt in his State of the Union address laid out what he wanted to do after World War II was over. Keep in mind, World War II is raging. 
And this is what the president says in his State of the Union address. He says, it is our duty now to begin to lay the plans and determine the strategy for the winning of a lasting peace and the establishment of an American standard of living higher than ever before known. We cannot be content, no matter how high that general standard of living may be, if some fraction of our people, whether it's one-third or one-fifth or one-tenth, is ill-fed, ill-clothed, ill-housed, and insecure. And you recall in his, uh, open, his first inauguration, he said one-third of America is ill-fed, ill-clothed, ill-housed. He said, we have come to a clear realization of the fact that true individual freedom cannot exist without economic security and independence. Necessitous men are not free men. People who are hungry and out of a job are the stuff of which dictatorships are made. In our day, these economic truths have become accepted as self-evident. We have accepted, so to speak, a second bill of rights under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station, race, or creed. Among these are the right for a useful and well-paying job in the industries or shops or farms or mines of the nation. The right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation. The right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a return that will give him and his family a decent living. The right of every business person, large and small, to trade in, any, in an atmosphere of freedom from unfair competition. The right of every family to a decent home. The right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good, ha good health. The right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment. The right to a good education. All of these rights spell security. And after this war is won, we must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. America's own rightful place in the world depends in large part upon how fully these and similar rights have been carried into practice for our citizens. For unless there is security here at home, there cannot be lasting peace in the world. And then he wraps it up by saying, if history were to repeat itself and we were to return to the so-called normalcy of the 1920s, then it is certain that even though we shall have conquered our enemies on the battlefields abroad, we shall have yielded to the spirit of fascism here at home. The 1920s, of course, Republican governance. Breaking news! The holiday season is upon us. Well, I guess you already knew that, right? Anyhow, that time of the year, family, friends, and everything so conveniently documented in video and photography. Now, picture your face in the mirror. You see all those wrinkles around your eyes? Crow's feet? Under eye bags? Now, imagine they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery. Just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm. A clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. It's exactly what you need to get through the holiday season and beyond. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I saw it for myself. Now I don't have to imagine anymore. You, too, can look 10 years younger. Simply put, I'm blown away by the results. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself in any setting. Best part is Plexiderm goes on clear so nobody will know you're using it. Unless, of course, you tell them. Go to Plexiderm.com and use my code TOM, T-H-O-M, for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, half off plus an extra 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-741-7998. That's 1-800-741-7998. Once again, 800-741-7998. Or go to Plexiderm.com today and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at checkout. Jim, and uh, is it Hebron Hills, Illinois, or Hebron? 
It's Hebron, Tom. Hebron. Okay. What's up, Jim? Eisenhower's farewell address, and in my reading of it, he originally wrote it, his first draft, he wrote it as the military-industrial-congressional complex. That's correct. And, words, he, and he struck he, out congressional, uh, you know, before he gave the speech. Right, but so so he saw this coming, where where the lobbying power uh, and lobbying is illegal in a lot of countries, but the lobbying power of the Pentagon and the industrial military has taken over. We're his worst fears right now, I think. Anyway, I just want to make that point. And it's a very very good point. And after he said, "We can't let the military-industrial complex seize this influence," and then he said, "You know, we can't allow our future to be mortgaged." And he was talking about by the expense of the military. There's a little ending to the speech. It's about a minute and a half, and I'm going to play it in just a second, in which he is saying he's really speaking to the consequences of this. And this is a part of his speech that is generally ignored, but I think it's actually the most important part. So here it is. This is Dwight Eisenhower, President Eisenhower. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect. Together we must learn how to compose differences, not with arms, but with intellect and decent purpose. And he talks about, you know, a community of dreadful fear and hate. I mean, what have we not become, have we not become that under Trump? May we be ever unswerving in devotion to principle. This is his closing prayer. Confident, but humble with power. Diligent in pursuit of the nation's great goals. To all the peoples of the world, I once more give expression to America's prayerful and continuing aspiration. We pray that peoples of all faiths, all races, all nations, may have their great human needs satisfied. That those now denied opportunity shall come to enjoy it to the full, that all who yearn for freedom may experience its spiritual blessings. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility, that all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity, and that the scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made disappear from the earth. It's Dwight Eisenhower, the la- you know, it, it, it almost brings tears to my eyes. I mean, a Republican president. Can you imagine, Jim? Well, no, I can't. I'm kind of I'm speechless, too. But just one last real quick thing. I was at a meeting with Lauren Underwood, our wonderful congressional representative here in Illinois 14th, and we were discussing early childhood education. And it came up, how are we going to pay? How can we afford it? I said, we should. that's the wrong question. It should be, how can we afford not to do it Amen. and pay down the road when these kids end up in juvenile detention and prison and all kinds of other things. It's a practical economic argument. Yeah. Amen. Very well said. Thank you very much, Jim. I appreciate the call. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind? Hey, not too much, Tom, but this idea of the military taking control is my central thought ever since Donald Trump became president. And the other day, I was talking to a liberal a friend of mine. Now, mainly I interact with Trump voters and Trump supporters. But when I was interacting with this liberal, I made the comment, what worries me is Republicans are acting like the Congress doesn't even exist. Well, his response was no duh, right? Thanks, Captain Obvious, basically like that. Yeah. You know, and I don't blame him, but then I thought about it. 
for the first time, they don't have a central adversary. There is no Chuck and Nancy. There is no Obama. There is no central villain. Okay, it's just this general nebulous uh, liberal villainy. And one of the guys I well, and people of color. I mean, Trump continues that, and now he's gone after Jews. I mean, it's amazing. I've got a whole rant on that. Tucker Carlson was demonizing Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's congressional district. It's one of the ones that has one of the largest proportions of of people of color, and you know, uh, who are also immigrants, legal immigrants in the United States. And he was saying that was dirty and filthy and this kind of stuff. I mean. Anyhow, back to you, Dave. Let's finish your point. This Trump support, he had a Trump 2020 hat on that I was stuck in the car with for four hours. He kept saying, he kept giving this vague threat. Look, if they go through with this impeachment, there's going to be consequences. This they, this mysterious they, keeps ignoring us, and it's to their, you know, to their ultimate demise. Right. Okay, well, I, I was thinking about this. And look, I was also thinking about this Jedi contract, you know, that Amazon is protesting that Trump favored Microsoft as a revenge thing. Look. Also, you know, this animus against Russia. I have no animus against Russia. Here's the problem. Russia, I've studied for years and years and years. Their military is an attack military now. The equipment they produce is not made for civil stability. It is made to attack and destroy enemy. It's very expensive, and they don't have the money for it. All right? China just released the, They're going to release the Tang submarine class. That submarine goes below 90 decibels underwater. It is a very lethal and advanced submarine. All right? Look, China and Russia need America to be oppressive, and they need America to you know, have a more central government that they can, they can contend with. Well, because it is in their national best interest. Because they're, they're both being run on a fairly authoritarian basis. And they're spending money they don't have. Putin refers to Soviet-era weaponry as legacy. They didn't even have the money for that. They certainly don't have the money now for a professional military with a whole bunch of retirees that are going to, you know, want their pension checks. They're not going to have the money to maintain these uh, space-based and advanced weapons. Okay, especially not with an America that, you know, that is uh, pushing liberal democracy around the globe. (laughs) It's just, I mean, it's obvious what they're doing. And the thing is, the military, I spent 25 years in, I know they are not going to allow any major civil just unrest. Basically, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Valkyrie with Tom Cruise, right? I have not. I've been thinking, well, Valkyrie is when they were going to assassinate Hitler. But there's other ways you could do that, a coup of that nature. You could also do one to keep an authoritarian in power. All right. So and you're suggesting, you know, Dave, the bottom line of everything you're saying here is that you're concerned that Trump is turning the United States into an authoritarian nation and that he may use the military to cement that process. Well, yes, and you know as well as I do, Tom, because you've lived overseas. Sometimes military-ran governments are better. And if liberals, all right, we do not have the ability. We're just going to be slaughtered by these Trumps. These Trumpers that have been Wait a minute. What? Can, can you name a, a, a single government anywhere in the world run by the military that does better than, than a democratic government? Oh, yeah. There's all kinds of examples of governments that are more Egypt. Egypt's ran Pakistan. You know, in Pakistan, the army makes their own cereal for kids and stuff like this. Oh, the army in Egypt and Pakistan, in both cases, just like Saddam Hussein in in Iraq, you know, the army owns a whole lot of industry that produces things that the army uses, but also produces things for the civilians. But I I wouldn't want to live in Egypt or Pakistan, particularly if I had political opinions that were inconsistent with the militaries. Or or when you said well-run, did you just simply mean stable? 
I'm talking about stable and efficient. Tom, look, yeah. right now, Republicans, the conservative side of the American political spectrum, is not interested in legislation. They're not interested. All they are interested in is maintaining their authoritarian figurehead Trump, okay? Right. The military, on the other hand, lets no good disaster go unused. Okay, there right. is no. All right, right. we they, saw that after nine no eleven. Liberals will have no choice but to say, "Look, you know, this military thing is better, and it keeps me alive." Okay, against these Trumpers, it keeps me protected against these out of control Trump maniacs with their guns. Okay, but right now, unfortunately, the left of the American political spectrum seems to be the only ones interested in maintaining the constitutional tenets that this, this government was founded on. I mean, without it, without, I mean, if we, if we cave, long story short, I'm saying if Donald Trump, faces, or anything happens, and you can say to yourself, look, I would not get by with that. I would not get by with ignoring a subpoena like that. I would not get by with none of this. Then don't go for it. Don't agree with it. I mean, I think that's the only way our republic is going to... Yeah, in other words, we're a nation of laws, and, if we, and we have to live as if we are a nation of laws. You know, it's... Uh... I get it. Dave, uh, thank you for the call. It's always interesting talking with you. A lot to digest there. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And, you know, Canada has a pretty rigorous policy of (laughs) not letting Americans immigrate. We'll be right back. We've all heard of Casper. You know the sleep company with outrageously comfortable products at not-so-outrageous prices. From award-winning mattresses to pillows, sheets, and duvets, Casper transforms the way we sleep one snooze at a time. Haven't tried them yet? Then it's time to treat yourself to better sleep during Casper's holiday sale. Casper Mattress is an award-winning balance of comfort and support. Louise and I love ours. Four layers of premium foam are designed to provide pressure relief for all-night comfort. The zone support keeps your back aligned and cradles you with extra support. Casper is the perfect place also to get all your holiday shopping done because, let's be honest, everyone sleeps. And as always, Casper has free shipping and free returns. Plus, every Casper mattress comes with a 100-night risk-free trial. Stress of holiday shopping doesn't need to keep you up at night. Casper has gifts for every dreamer. Go to casper.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, now, and use the code GIFTS for $25 off gift orders over $100. Shop for family, friends, and and while you're there, treat yourself to a little something, too. That's casper.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. The code is GIFTS, G-I-F-T-S, for $25 off gift orders over $100. Offer expires on December 24th. Terms and conditions apply. See casper.com slash terms. Ivan in Bartlett, Illinois, listening to WCPT. Hey, Ivan, what's up? Hey, Tom. I find it so sad, Tom, that Tulsi Gabbard, the presidential candidate calling for the end of the racket of war in the Middle East, Mm -hmm. ending support of Saudi Arabia, who spread radical uh, Wahhabism, took down the World Trade Center, and killed our military members right here in Florida just the other day, is ridiculed and called a Russian asset and an Assad apologist. The Washington Post report proves that Tulsi is right and has been right all along. 
Yeah, about the wars. Absolutely. I, you know, my problem with Tulsi Gabbard has to do with her support of Mr. Modi in India and her support of uh, Hindu nationalism I, and what I see as growing fascism in India. But her position uh, again, on, on her war in Afghanistan and Iraq is she, absolutely right. She is. She was there. Uh, and she's not supporting Modi in that way. She is yeah, she willing to negotiate with Modi. Well. Okay. So uh, I, I find that a Republican talking point, Tom. All right. Well, maybe. It may be. I mean, you know, she's welcome to come on the show and, and talk about it. We have opened that option to all the Democratic candidates and contacted every single one of their campaigns and said, you know, if you'd like, you can come on the program. You can even have a whole hour and you can talk to, to the people instead of to Tom if you'd like. And, you know, a few of them have taken us up on it. Tulsi Gabbard has not, at least so far. Ivan, thanks for the call. The federal government, I believe it's the Department of Defense, has issued a report over this last week showing that basically this is like the Pentagon Papers. You know, the Pentagon Papers was this exhaustive analysis of our involvement in Vietnam. And the conclusion they came to was that we never should have gotten in there in the first place, that we are not accomplishing our goals, and then in fact we're making the situation worse by staying there. And that's what Daniel Ellsberg leaked to the New York Times. You know, and Nixon went nuts. Well, this document didn't have to get leaked. This document was just presented. And basically it says we never should have gone into Afghanistan. I'm not sure it comes out and says that. I'll say that. Mullah Omar, the guy who ran the Taliban, offered to arrest Osama bin Laden and turn him over to a third country for prosecution. And George W. Bush said, no, I'd rather have a war. And proceeded to bomb the second poorest country in the world. Afghanistan had a GDP of $2 billion a year. Nothing right? Smaller than Louisiana. Nothing. And we have spent trillions of dollars. We could have simply given Afghanistan $2 billion, made everybody in the country twice, twice as rich, and said in exchange for that, give us Osama bin Laden. Well, Omar would have jumped at it. But Bush wanted a war. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Anyhow, bottom line conclusion of the study is that we're not doing any good there and it's time to get the hell out. Kathy in Walport, Oregon, listening on KYAQ. Hey, Kathy, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. When you were playing Eisenhower, I got choked up. Just remembering when Republicans had a moral compass yep. and were patriots. But I'm calling about this three-year study the military did on lessons learned in Afghanistan. Yeah, that the Washington the Post just published, yeah. Yeah, the generals considered it unwinnable, but they hid this fact from the public. Right. But Bush and Cheney knew it. The Pentagon Papers. And Obama knew it. Yep. And so how come there wasn't more, you know, like the Fulbright hearings during Vietnam? How come there wasn't more oversight? Did the Patriot Act, what effect did that have on dissent and questioning this war? That's a good question. I'm guessing that the effect of the Patriot Act was chilling. You know, I remember the Fulbright hearings broadly, but I mean, I was a teenager during the Vietnam War. Me I don't I, I don't remember watching any particular parts of it. W- w- did those hearings come about as a consequence of Daniel Ellsberg's release in the Pentagon Papers, or did they precede that? No, they preceded it, I think. Huh. Yeah, because that was during the Nixon administration, as I recall. And But and, at least they were questioning it. They yeah. were wondering yeah. where our money is going, what is the goal. Right, right. And it's obvious the generals in Afghanistan knew we weren't going to win. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think uh, this thing in the Washington Post, it's huge. This report. I heard him and, on NPR. It is huge. Yeah. It's huge. I mean, this is the massive scandal that covers both a Republican and a Democratic administration. There are, as far as I can tell, no heroes from what I've read in the Washington Post. I encourage people who are not familiar with this to go, go read the Washington Post. You can read it online at WashingtonPost.com. They lay it out. You're right, Kathy. The generals were saying pretty much from the get-go that there's no way that we can win a war with Afghanistan or Iraq. We're going to end up being an occupying force forever if that's the path we take. It needs, you know, or alternatively, what we should be doing is supporting indigenous forces that are favorable to our to democracy, small d democracy, to our point point of view. But, you know, Bush and Cheney decided that they wanted to have a war. They Bush was very clear. I played the clip from Cindy Sheehan earlier that George W. Bush thought that the number one way for him to get himself reelected in 2005 was to have a war in 2001 or 2002. I guess I guess actually maybe it was early 2002 that would extend over the election cycle in 2004. And he did. He did. Well, it's so sad that we never learned the lesson from Vietnam. Yeah. You know, all the soldiers who died after the Pentagon Papers came out. I agree. now millions have died again. And in Vietnam, we hadn't learned the lessons of Korea. And in Korea, we hadn't learned the lessons of the Spanish-American War. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Kathy, thank you for the call. It's uh, every generation, it seems, has to learn these lessons all over again. Jim in Lombard, Illinois, listening to WCPT. Hey, Jim, what's up? Hi, Tom. I came across this document, the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Yes, the United and States. I, I don't know why. I never even hear it mentioned. I think it's a great document, and if it was acknowledged by the powers that be, it would alleviate a whole lot of suffering and strife in this world. I agree. Unfortunately, the United Nations has no enforcement mechanism for it. So it's basically an outline of principles. But the principles include everyone should have housing, everyone should have food, everyone should have health care, everyone should have education. And also that, you know, nobody should be being tortured or imprisoned unjustly or inappropriately or unfairly. Well, you can't even torture somebody fairly. Nobody should be tortured. Check me if I'm missing anything, Jim, but I think that that's the essence of the U.N. Declaration of Human Rights. It also says that all human beings have the right to a job, a meaningful job with a living wage. Right. Yeah, it's, it's like a re-articulation of FDR's second Bill of Rights. And that was in 1944. I mean, before the United Nations even existed. The United Nations came into existence in the 1950s. Jim, thank you for the call. Uh, Winston in Independence, Missouri. Hey, Winston, what's on your mind today? I'm a Democratic National Committee member from Missouri. Good on you. Thank you. One of the primary responsibilities of the DNC is to promote and encourage fulfillment of our platform pledge. And Roosevelt's Economic Bill of Rights is alive and well in the Democratic platform. There are echoes of it scattered throughout the platform. I think it's important, the lady who called in was talking about holding the House and taking back the Senate. So I think changing the hearts and minds of Democrats in Congress and state legislatures who have uh, taken corporate money is the shortest road to victory. Yeah. And it's, not to mention working at the state level where we have 15 states now with Virginia being at it, where we have a Democratic trifecta. Yeah. Great points, Winston. You know, it's been three years since I've even read the Democratic Party platform. I need to dust it off and, and talk about it on the air again. Thank you. 
Our book today for the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Age of Eisenhower, America and the World in the 1950s by William I. Hitchcock. This is from chapter 19, page 475, about three quarters of the way through the book. Republicans of the 1950s knew how to sell a product. They pioneered the use of television advertising in politics, and at their national conventions in 1952 and 1956, they mobilized actors, dancers, acrobats, sports figures, crooners, jugglers, and sword swallowers to infuse their rather dull message of peace and prosperity with some pizzazz. In middle 1960, mid-July 1960, though, as the GOP faithful gathered in Chicago at the International Amphitheater, the same hall in which Ike and Dick had formed their political tandem eight years earlier, the convention planners were running out of ideas. A giant elephant named Koa, on loan from Louisiana, proved to be too big to amble down the aisles of the hall and had to be returned. The torchlight parade of 500 young Republicans had to be canceled due to the fire hazard of their kerosene-soaked rags. Plans to get Henry Fonda into costume as Abraham Lincoln, a role he had played woodenly in the 1939 film Young Mr. Lincoln, were scotched when Fonda turned out to be a Democrat. Half the hotel rooms in Chicago remained empty a few days before the convention. Besides an absence, absence of hoopla, the top Republican leaders had serious worries. A Gallup poll on the eve of the convention showed that since 1952, the Republicans had lost support among business and professional voters, white-collar workers, and farmers, three key demographic groups. And they had made no inroads among skilled and unskilled laborers who favored the Democratic Party by a ratio of four to one. President Eisenhower's personal popularity had masked serious weaknesses in the Republican Party. As the Republicans gathered in Chicago, John Kennedy, a junior senator with little international name recognition, led Nixon in the polls by four points. And uh, I should add, Nixon was the vice president, uh, Eisenhower. The press corps, bored to tears by the lack of drama in Republican ranks, worked hard to breathe life into the candidacies of New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller and Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater, who might, they earnestly hope, challenge Nixon for the GOP nomination from the left and the right. The Washington Post editorial page noted that both parties inclined toward moderate nominees like Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, and Nixon, but cautioned that, quote, an excess of moderation can yield a pudding devoid of flavor or shape, end quote, and hoped Goldwater would add a dash of, quote, pepper to the otherwise bland old party's Chicago solemnities, end quote. Indeed, old guard supporters of the dear departed Bob Taft now had a new champion in the ruggedly handsome conservative from the desert west. It was not to be. Goldwater did not seek the nomination and backed Nixon. Rockefeller, whom most veteran Republicans distrusted for his ideological elasticity and his vanity, pressured Nixon to adopt a number of Kennedy-like platform planks on issues such as defense spending, civil rights, health insurance, and housing. Nixon, terrified that a Rockefeller boomlet might snatch away his long-sought prize, caved into these demands before meeting with Rocky in New York on July 22nd three days before the convention opened. Rockefeller, in turn, threw his support to Nixon in a feeble gesture of party unity. In extracting concessions from Nixon on the GOP platform, though, Rockefeller managed to weaken Nixon's case that he and he alone had the toughness to confront Khrushchev on the world stage. The real challenge Nixon faced in taking the leadership of the Republican Party did not come from Goldwater or Rockefeller. It came from Eisenhower. Of course, Ike supported Nixon's presidential bid since Nixon offered the best hope of extending the Eisenhower legacy. But the distance between those two men, which had always been great, never seemed wider than in 1960. 
Eisenhower had become the world's most respected, most recognized, and most liked man. For all of his apparent political weaknesses and occasional lapses in his mishandling of the U-2 affair, he occupied an unassailable place in the pantheon of great figures of his time. His war service alone would have placed him on history's pedestal, but he followed that with eight years of dignified leadership of a country whose global power had reached unprecedented dimensions. When Eisenhower arrived in Chicago on July 26 to address the Republican convention, over one million Chicagoans lined the streets along his route to the Sheraton Blackstone Hotel. Shouts of joy rang through the miles of well-wishers. We Like Ike signs dotted the scene along with hand-painted expressions of thanks to the old warrior. Confetti so dense that it stuck to Ike's moist and beaming face poured from the rooftops. Banners and flags draped every storefront and lampposts in a blaze of red, white, and blue. It was Ike the crowd wanted. A loudspeaker in a truck following the motorcade blared out a popular tune by the Four Knights. I love the sunshine of your smile. The president, visibly moved, told reporters outside the hotel, it's one of the finest crowds I've ever seen. On Tuesday evening, Senator Dirksen, a famously orotund speaker in a profession known for producing magnificent windbags, came to the podium in the amphitheater to introduce the president. Few recalled that eight years earlier, Dirksen had nominated Senator Taft. Anyhow, the book is The Age of Eisenhower by Hitchcock. Hey, Maru, what's up? Yes, Maru. Mm -hmm. Not too much. I have a gripe. This fellow from Florida, he was complaining about what President Obama spent on his so-called worldwide tours. Right. He was handling political business, correct? Yeah. And when he did take vacation, he spent his own money, if well, I'm not mistaken. Uh, there, there was American money spent as well for his security. But, but the simple fact of the matter is that in his, first, uh, in his first year in office, Donald Trump spent more taxpayer dollars on travel than, and on Correct. the security uh -huh. details associated with travel than Barack Obama did in eight years. I mean, it's just a simple fact. Matter of fact, that's what I was getting to that point right there exactly. Okay, he spent so much of the Secret Service money that they had to apply for another allotment, correct? You're correct. That's right. Okay. Now, he spent a six months what President Obama spent in eight years. Yeah, I don't know that it was six months. It was less than a year, but you're, you're right. Correct. Broadly uh -huh. speaking, yes. Correct. And they want to compare that to what President Obama does. Yeah, you know, I mean, this was, that's one of the old Fox News talking points is, oh, my God, Obama's going to Hawaii. How much is it going to cost us? I mean, of course, he, yeah, you know, uh -huh. he grew up in Hawaii. That, I doubt Fox News is still using that as a talking point because it just wouldn't mm -hmm. fly. I mean, you know, Trump is going to right. Florida every weekend. And he's enriching himself yes. with the taxpayers' money. Yes, Yes, and, they've, and, they have, and they have rebuilt and refurbished all of these Trump properties so that, they can, so that they can be hardened, so that the Secret Service can function. They've upgraded the communication Correct. systems. They replaced all the telephone systems. They have spent millions of dollars. We have, you and I, Maru, our taxpayer dollars, Correct. millions of them have gone to the Trump Organization. And, you know, that never happened with Obama, obviously. Maru, i got to run, but thanks for the call. Your point was very well made. It is, uh, oh, it's the end of the show. Ah! Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back same time, same place.
In the meantime, tell your friends about progressive media. There's some great progressive media out there, not just this show. I've got a lot of great colleagues from Sirius XM across to Free Speech TV to great radio stations, WCPT, AM 910 in San Francisco, KTNF in Minneapolis. Tell your friends about how you're hearing this show and get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 